you for coming to our Wednesday night service. I love our Wednesday night service, and I love you guys. I really do, and I appreciate you guys being here. I appreciate you standing, sticking with our church, the loyalty to our church and to Jesus. I really love our church. I love it here, and I, and I, I love everything that God's doing. Uh, I love what I get to do at the church. I love teaching the Bible. I love hanging out with you guys. This is a very cool time of year for me. Um, most churches slow down in the summertime, and so uh, typically if you're in the ministry, summertime can be a really a much slower season. It's like a chill season. For us at Griggs, that is not the case. I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, in the summer, man, I'm like, I'm running 100 miles an hour. We had a basketball camp, mission trip, summer block party, VBS, and then uh, right after that, got to get ready for the revival, then fall family fun night. So for our church, it's actually this time of year that tends to slow down uh, overall. I mean, we never really totally slow down, but, you know, it slows down a little bit. All we really have left on the calendar till I don't know, uh, I guess mid-January or something like that, is uh, Grigsmas, which is what we call Christmas around here, Grigsmas. And uh, we have a Grigsmas party on, uh, I think that's December 8th, Sunday night, but you don't need to remember that or anything. It's not an announcement, but that's about it, right? And that's just me coming and eating dessert, so it's a pretty easy day for me. And so this is my time to, a lot of times, November, December, the last few years, um, particularly December, early January, but even in November, even this week, I'm getting to work on the vision of our church, where we're going to go next year, what things we're going to do. Uh, better, what things we're going to do differently, and I love doing that, and I love thinking about that, and I love tackling that, and uh, I get very hopeful around this time of year that the best is really yet to come for our church. I really think we got good things uh, on the horizon, and it's uh, it's awesome. I love this church, and I love you guys, and I love the Bible, and we're going to look at the Bible uh, tonight. We're looking at Matthew chapter 7. And Melody did a great job reading that for us. It's a very short passage, so let's just read it again, make sure it's fresh in our minds, because basically I want to read this passage and then make several comments about it um, that I think will help us understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. It's a pretty well-known passage. There's a kid's song that has come out of this passage, I believe it is. And uh, so let's look at it, and then let's dissect it. Here's what the Bible says. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I'll liken him to a wise man, which built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew. They beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded on a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be like to a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So just dissecting this passage, just looking and observing this passage, I just want to make some comments. I'd say the first one is, isn't it amazing? Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks. God become a man. He's fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man, came to be one of his creation, one of us. And he didn't just live among us and observe or live among us and, and uh, uh, you know, receive our worship or praise. He didn't just make us 
bow to him and lift his scepter, he actually began to instruct us and teach us like a teacher. In fact, one of his titles was rabbi, which was a Jewish word for teacher. Matthew 7, 24, that first little phrase, he says, whoever hears these sayings of mine, whoever hears this teaching, What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about his teaching, particularly in Matthew 7, 24. He's talking about what we call now the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I've actually learned something really cool about the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking a lot about the Sermon on the Mount on Wednesday nights. I've been studying it personally in my time with Jesus, hanging out with Jesus, listening to his sermon. It's the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, One thing I've learned about the Sermon on the Mount is you can find different pieces of it in different parts of the Gospels. In other words, you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and find it repeated or dissected or, or stated in front of different places, different crowds, different times in Jesus' life. And if you study this, you'll find something really cool. Basically, what we have here is Jesus' stump speech, for lack of better words. You know, you got a politician, he's going town to town to try to raise votes. He gives a stump speech, the same speech at, in front of every new group of potential followers to see if he'll get the vote. This is sort of what Jesus was doing with this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He preaches this in a field. I believe it's in the book of Luke. He preaches parts of this to different audiences we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And basically, Jesus, remember, he's itinerant for these three years of his ministry, age 30 to age 33. He's going from town to town, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and then into uh, Jerusalem, Every time he gets in front of a new crowd, it seems, some of this sermon or, or, or parts of this sermon, perhaps even sometimes all of this sermon, is repeated to this new group of potential followers to see if they will follow him or they will not. And so he's talking here about his core teaching. Whoever hears my core teaching, whoever hears what, what I have to say, my, my main point, right, my teaching will be like guy who builds his house on a rock, or if they don't, guy who builds his house on the sand. So he's talking about this Sermon on the Mount and how important it is that he's taught us this and what we do with it. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, which I know many of you are familiar with this by now, but basically it's Jesus talking about how the kingdom of God has broken into the kingdom of man how it is broken through the ceiling of the world, broken through the atmosphere, and come down into earth. Right. So the kingdom of God is here because the Messiah is here, was here, and now is here through the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God has broken in. Okay? So light has shattered darkness. It has come into darkness. Right? Uh, whenever we follow Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, We bring with us the kingdom of God. We break into darkness with light. So Jesus says, right, as sinful to look on a woman, to lust after her. It's not just bad to commit adultery, it's bad to do it in the heart. And so whenever we live a life of purity, whenever we fight our temptations towards lust, we are bringing with us the kingdom of God. Jesus said, uh, for example, not to get retribution, but to turn the other cheek. Whenever we refuse retribution and revenge for ourselves and we forgive others, we bring into this world the kingdom of God. Light comes into darkness. Jesus said, uh, he taught us, for example, how to pray. Prayer is like a talking to your father. Pray in this way, our father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And whenever we pray, talk to our father wherever we're at, 
whether that's in the car or in the house, what have you, in the office, right? Every time we pray and talk to our Father here on earth, the kingdom of God breaks into earth and we bring it with us. And so Jesus is talking about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, I've brought the kingdom of God. Light has come to the world and all who follow me will be the light of the world. Jesus has spoken. Another comment I would make on this that's just interesting to me is that rain is coming. Rain is coming. Jesus talks about two different foundations, the rock and the sand. He's talking to these people who would have been familiar with perhaps construction, but at least rocks and sand. For this was Galilee, particularly around the Sea of Galilee, what you would have is uh, this sand, this desert, uh, but it was very firm. It was, it was like concrete, at least it seemed that way, right? It didn't seem like it was softer than the bedrock, which was underneath it. So some mistakenly built houses early on just on the sand. And for a while it stood, it was strong. But they have rainy seasons, living by the sea and so forth. And when you know a decade passes or whatever, eventually that foundation would crack would fizzle out, and the house would literally fall down. But if you dug beneath it, as hard as it was, if you dug beneath that sand down into the rock or the bedrock, then your house would last through decades of rainy season. Your kids would live there. Your kids' kids would live there. It would stand. Right? And so one thing that's really interesting is he talks about the rock, and he talks about the sand, and he... Talking about two different foundations, but they experience the same event. The rain, the floods, the wind. It's just interesting. Verse 26 tells us what uh, we'd assume to hear, right? Those who refuse to follow Jesus, those who reject his teachings, who will not bring light to darkness, but rather love darkness rather than light. Their house will, will be under rain, wind, and floods, and fall. Like that's sort of a thing we would expect to hear. But he also says the same thing about the rock, the house that's built on the rock. Those who follow Jesus, those who accept his teachings, those who will obey him, they too experience the rain. They also will see the flood. They also will have winds blown against them. So here we see that those who follow Jesus and those who do not follow Jesus both will experience some storms in life. There'll be disease or death, conflict, betrayal, disappointment. These things are experienced by all of humanity, whether you follow Jesus or not. So this is just an interesting comment. This is just an interesting thought or observation that Jesus isn't promising for those who follow his teaching, that the outside world will become more stable. He doesn't promise us this. He doesn't promise that if you'll begin to follow him, the car won't break down, you won't have to go to the doctor, you won't need medicine, you won't experience pain. He's not promising stability in the outside world, but Jesus is promising stability in the inside world. He's promising stability on the inside, the internal world. That's what he's talking about. 
And he's saying that for those who will follow his teaching, those who will obey, those who will take to heart what he said about the kingdom, who will bring the kingdom with them, light into darkness, there will be an internal stability. A third observation I'd make is that uh, Jesus doesn't leave anyone homeless. Just interesting. He, he, he says we're building our house on something. We're all building a house and we're all building it on something. Right? Nobody's without the house. Nobody's without the foundation. Nobody's without the elements. Rain, wind, flooding. So he's saying that we're all in this. We're all building our lives on something. Okay? On someone's teaching. On some set of values okay so uh let's go into this right so the house for jesus metaphor here is like the center of life right it's our entire life is the house is where you eat it's where you sleep you spend time with the kids spend time with your spouse you celebrate birthdays and this is where you come home to unwind this is where some of your work even is done the house is representing the center of life so here he's really talking about life. He's saying you, can you are building a life. Everyone is, right? You're building a life, and your life is made up of all kinds of things. I'd say at least these key relationships. Life is based or built on certain key relationships. I'd give you uh, about five of them, okay? Our first and foremost, our relationship to God and with God. Relationship with self is a second big piece of life. Now, I know for some of you, relationship with self perhaps sounds a little bit psychoanalytical, a little Freudian perhaps, right? Like how can you have a relationship with yourself? Well, this is actually a huge theme in the Bible. This is when the Bible talks about, you know, renew your mind, when the Bible talks about thoughts, when the Bible talks about any of these things, like the heart, it's talking about your relationship with and to yourself. And the idea is here, identity, right? So you can have uh, uh, identity based in something other than Jesus, and it's very fluctuating, right? Like, well, I'm a basketball player. That's who I am. Well, if you, you know, break your foot or turn 40, you're not a basketball player, right? So now what do you do, right? Your relationship with yourself has been disrupted, right? So there's this idea of identity, uh, how I view myself. I view myself as wicked, or do I view myself as formerly wicked, now redeemed? Do I view myself as worthless or made in the image of God, eternally valuable? Do I view myself as unloved or loved? Do I view myself as uh, orphan or child of Jesus? So relationship with self, big part of life. Relationship with family. This could include uh, immediate family, non-immediate family, spouse, kids. Relationship with friends. This is for us as Christians where the church comes in. Our Christian friends, that's the church. Those relationships that are based on not just personality, but also Jesus, helping one another follow Jesus. This is called church. It is our Christian community. Relationship with time. So how we view our past, present, and future. It's a big deal in life, right? If you think you have this tragic past that cannot be overcome, that's really affecting you, right? If you think that you have no hope for the future, that's really affecting you. This is why Jesus says, uh, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Paul says, set your mind on things above. He's talking about your relationship with time. How you view your timeline 
is a huge piece of your life. Right? If you think, think about it, like if you knew you were dying tomorrow, there's going to be a lot of different actions taken tonight. Right? A lot of your actions actually stem from what you think about time. And so we got these relationships. They all build our life, our relationship with God, self, family, friends, time, our life. We're building a life. And the idea is we are building it on a foundation of teaching. We're building it on someone's teaching. We're all building it on something. So we come into this life and our first teacher is our heart. And sometimes our heart is our worst teacher. I heard a guy that, I actually knew him out in Seattle. He's a pretty popular Christian guy. He's changed a lot of his views over the last couple of years. And I heard him on a podcast this week arguing uh, for following your heart. He says, Christians say you shouldn't follow your heart, but God gave you the heart, and the heart's good and all this stuff. And the truth is, uh, I think if you mean follow what the Holy Spirit says to your heart, he's right. But that's really not what he was saying, right? He's trying to fight for something the Bible fights against, following your heart. The heart can tell you the truth, but the heart can deceive you. We know this from silly examples, right? right you see a giant dessert, you go, ah, I want that, right? You're out to eat, they bring it by that cart with the fake dessert. You ever seen this? Right, they bring by a car, here's all of our desserts for tonight, and they're like little replicas of dessert. They're not really, they're like little show-offs. And so then they go get you the real one, you eat it, then you feel, well, sometimes great, sometimes terrible, right? Over, overstuffed, heart deceived you. You thought you wanted something that was going to hurt you. This happens in big ways as well. And so you come into the world and your heart begins to teach you, only without Jesus, your heart is deceptive and it teaches you wrongly. It teaches you not to love your neighbor as yourself, but to get things out of your neighbor, to ignore your neighbor when it's convenient, and to befriend him when it's convenient, to ditch him when he's inconvenient. That's what the heart teaches. So your first teacher is your heart, okay? And you can build your life on your heart. After you grow up just a little bit even, you're going to start hearing the teacher of experience, so our experience becomes our teacher. Again, now this is sort of a little different than the heart, right? Experience is something outside coming in, and that can be really good, and it can be detrimental. It could be either. Some of you, you remember childhood, preteen, high school. You remember good experiences that taught you good things. I remember uh, when I was 18, I think it was, went on a mission trip to the Caribbean, the poor part, okay, I always have to explain that. Not the resort part, though they need Jesus too. I don't know why I didn't go over there. But I was in the poor part of the Caribbean. That's a good experience teaching me good things. Good experience teaching me good things. However, I had many bad experiences that taught me bad things that were not true, that seemed true at the time. And so you can base your world on experiences. So some people do this, and many times it's to their detriment, so they had a really bad experience, let's say with, I don't know, uh, a man. And so now they don't trust men ever, 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 right? They're not even a chance, right? I don't care if you're my brother, my dad, whoever, right? That, I had a bad experience with men. Now all men must be evil. Or I had a bad experience with a woman. All women must be evil. I had a bad experience with 
friendship. If you get too close to me, I push away. Had a bad dating relationship. You get too close to me, I push away. I've learned from experience. And in this case, in many cases, experience is a bad teacher. After you have experiences, then you get teaching that is force-fed. So some of you are force-fed good teaching. That's a good thing. Some of you are force-fed bad teaching. These are things that you just hear from your parents, teachers, authority figures. Then eventually, at some point, after puberty, your brain develops enough to where you can think for yourself. And even if you are force-fed good things, good teaching, even if you are force-fed just pure Christianity, you want to find it out for yourself. This is a lot of where teenage rebellion comes from. They just want to learn things for themselves. So you can tell your kid all day, don't you know, drive 100 miles an hour in our neighborhood, and they got to figure it out for themselves. And so they hit every mailbox, you know, get pulled over, lose their license, whatever. You know, and now they know. they, they got to learn for themselves. This is a phase a lot of us go through. So we begin to seek teaching. So we're not force-fed teaching. We're actually looking for teaching. Here's what Jesus is saying. Sermon on the Mount, I think. He's saying that when you go to look for teaching, you're going to find it, and mine will be in there. And I think this is true. I think those who seek him, find him. And those who seek him more, find him more. God himself said, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. And I think he's telling the truth. I think many go seeking teaching, and I think especially After his resurrection, after the New Testament, you'll find in the midst of teaching, there is Jesus. Jesus is such a powerful phenomenon in human history that all world religions explain him, even though he doesn't name any of them. It's very interesting. Right? Like you go and talk to a Buddhist, they'll have an explanation for Jesus, but you're never going to read Jesus talking about the Buddha. Additionally, like the Islamic faith, they mentioned Jesus in the Quran 25 times, actually more than Muhammad, because they have to explain him to their, they have to explain him somehow. He's just such a world phenomenon that they have to somehow put him in a category, give him a title, because people want to know. And so in the Quran, you'll see his name 25 times as a prophet, messenger from God, like Muhammad. But you will find Jesus in that search, and you will know that he existed, you'll know about where he was from, and you'll be spurred on to see what's the deal about him. Hinduism, they believe in millions of gods. They are polytheistic, so they have lots of little gods, and they believe Jesus is amongst that pantheon, one of the gods. So Hindu people will eventually hear Jesus' name about where Jesus was from and the kind of guy he was. They will not hear the full truth about him, but his name will be in there. I find that as we go to seek teaching, light is revealed to some degree. It might be a very, 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 very small degree, and I may be wrong. There may, there may, not, there may be a case out there where you don't. But Jesus here is saying that there's two teachings in the world as you seek. His teaching and every other teaching. And here's the idea. That once you encounter that teaching, which he kind of assumes will happen to some degree, most of the time, you then are responsible for what you do with it. You can accept it or deny it. Those are your two options. Jesus is a very interesting teacher in that he will not allow his teaching to be mixed with anyone else's. Very interesting. 
Every other teacher, you want to mix my teacher. If I got some truth, that guy has some truth. They have, they have truth. That's great. Mix it all together. See what you get. Many teachers like that. Jesus, it's either fully me or none of me. That's how Jesus operates. That's how he rolls. Listen, it's either my teaching or it's every other teaching. He lumps them all together. So you live your life by the Quran. It's the same thing as living your life by green eggs and ham to Jesus. It's all the same. It's me or it's not me. Those are the two categories for Jesus. And this is where his metaphor starts. He's like, you're going to follow my teaching. You'll be a wise man building your house on a rock. You follow anything else, foolish man building your house on the sand. This is the dichotomy that Jesus brings up. These are the options. He says, you're going to build your foundation or something on something. It's going to be me or somebody else. This brings me to my fourth comment on this. It's amazing the claim Jesus makes about his own teaching. That is an amazing claim. In these few short verses, he is claiming that there are two foundations in the world. He's one, everything else is the other. I mean, imagine anyone else saying this. You know how C.S. Lewis said he's either liar, lunatic, or the Lord? This is true. Because if you're not the Lord and you say this, you are either a liar or a lunatic. Like if I tell you, you can live like me, Mitch Miller, or, or, or you can live like everybody else. Like I'm exclusive. I'm better than everybody. Different, unique, what we would say, the theological term, I'm holy. I'm set apart from everyone else. Right? You, me or them, but you can't have both. That's an amazing claim. I mean, that is an intense claim. And here in this text in particular, Jesus is talking about religion. So he's saying there's two foundations. In this particular text, he's talking about his audience and the Sermon on the Mount and what they would have known, the teaching they would have received was religion 101. So he's saying there's me or there's religion, right? The, the, the beliefs of the Pharisees, which was basically the Old Testament masked with a bunch of do's and don'ts that they made up. Religion, which is, you know, do good and you'll get good results. Additionally, I would say there is a secondary theme perhaps at play here. So he says it's either me or religion. I'd also argue he's also got paganism in view. Right? So paganism, which is the idea that if you manipulate your rituals, you can manipulate the supernatural. And then for our day and age, I would add any, anything that's popular for right now, I would just say it's humanism. So Jesus religion. Jesus, paganism. Jesus, humanism. Humanism is you get results without God. That everything that's good comes from within humanity. Humanity doesn't need an outside deity. We got this on our own. That's humanism or secular humanism. So Jesus comes and he says there's religion 101. You could take that teaching, see where it gets you. Paganism 101. You got humanism 101. Or you can take my course Build your life on this foundation. It's relationship 101. Jesus comes in and, and here's his teaching is I'm God. I love you. I pursue you. I then save you. I transform your behavior from my Holy Spirit and I produce the results I want in you. What he calls in the Bible fruit through a relationship 
Here's Jesus' claim. You believe anything but that, when the rains come, you'll lose that whole belief system. It will fail you. You will lose your identity. You will lose your, your core of who you are. You will lose heart. You will lose hope. You will probably abandon whatever faith that is. You will, have, you will have be left with no stability in the internal world. However, if you believe my teaching, this is his claim, you follow my teaching, you follow my sermon on the mount, when the rains come and the winds blow, your belief system will be intact, your identity will be intact, your house will stand. This is the claim. And that leads me to this comment, which is, is this true? And it seems that Jesus is saying, Feel free to test this out to make sure it's true. Anybody can just test this out. This is such an incredible claim, and yet I believe Jesus would invite us to test it. Test the claim. So let's do it. Let's run, before we close up, let's just run a couple of tests. Let's run a test about others, our relationship to others. Okay, so religion, for example, would be in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about how you don't kill anybody, you're good. Anger is okay as long as you don't act violently. Jesus says, no, anger in the heart is the same thing as acting violently. It's the same sin. That's Jesus. Okay, so here's the thing that Jesus said. Here's how he puts it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 23. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and then you remember that your brother has something against you, leave there your gift at the altar, go thy way, be reconciled to your brother, then come give your gift. So religion would say, you didn't kill your brother, so just go to worship. Jesus says, he's got something against you for good reason. He's emotionally wounded by you, and you know it. Go reconcile, because what's in the heart really does matter. Then come worship together. So let's test this. Let's add the rain. Let's add the wind. Okay, you got these brothers, emotional wound between them. Here comes the rain. Here comes the flood. Right? Let's say their parents pass away. Now they've got to deal with their parents' debts, their parents' estate, their parents' the inheritance they've left. Here's the question. Do you want to work with the brother that you merely didn't kill, or do you want to work with the brother you apologized to, at least attempted reconciliation, and admitted that you wounded him? Even if that wound wasn't physical, it was deep in the heart. Well, when the rains come, for those who simply didn't reconcile because they didn't have any outward behavior of physical violence, when, when, they, they, when it comes down to working with them on, let's say, the inheritance or the estate or whatever, that brother that's hurt is going to take all that paperwork, run off to the lawyer's office by himself. You're probably never going to see that side of the family again. Your house falls. But for those who tried to follow Jesus' teaching to reconcile with those they've wounded emotionally, not just physically, that brother might work with you, might even stand with you, might even attend your funeral, might even be there for the kids' birthdays and graduation, your house will stand. Let's take another test, right? Let's take one concerning our relationship with God. Paganism says rituals bring blessing from God that you can experience. The gospel, Jesus' teaching, the Father will bless you because he is good and he loves you and he likes you. You might experience it, you might not experience it, but the blessings are there. Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 6, 7, and 8. But when you pray, 
Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they'll be heard for their much speaking. Be not like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So let's say you got a pagan, and paganism say you do enough of these prayers. You say this phrase a hundred times with this ritual, it'll rain on your crops. Then you have the guy trying to follow Jesus. He knows that there's a father above who knows he needs rain. Now let's, let's add the rain. Let's say the rain in this case is no rain. Let's add in drought. Okay, if you've done a hundred Hail Marys and 14 rituals and sacrifices and you don't get rain, where are you at in your faith? You're like, man, God must not love me. God must not care. God must not even be there or exist. But if you have a father who's parenting you and teaching you, no rain is a problem, but perhaps he's guiding you to a new vocation. Perhaps he's going to provide some other way and surprise you with his goodness and love. Your house stands. You could even test this with a relationship with time like we were talking about or relationship with work the time you spend at work. Humanism says, get all you can. This is all you got. This life is it, so make it good. The gospel is we have eternal life, so sacrifice things now for things later. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Moss and rust, death corrupt, thieves break through and steal, but lay treasures in heaven. So the humanist says, go to work. Spend time going to work so you can make bank. Follower of Jesus says, go to work so you can make a difference. So let's add some rain. Okay, so... They work extra hard, they work extra hours, the humanist puts in overtime, he neglects his family, neglects his kids, going 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, so he can buy some cool car. He gets in the car, and after a few weeks, it doesn't satisfy him. He's not satisfied. Now what? Well, the house falls. Where's his identity? Where's his belief system? He looks back at those years of work, of overtime, of refusing vacations, refusing to get to his kids' games, and it's waste. And the house falls. But maybe there's a guy who spent all that time at work to make a difference. He doesn't have a cool car, but he looks back and he has friends who are coworkers who they still chat sometimes even though they're retired. And they made differences in each other's lives. And he was able to be generous with the money he earned. And now he doesn't have a cool car, but his house stands and that he didn't waste his life. So Jesus says, test this, and when you test it, you'll find it's true. If you follow me, you will have inward stability. You do my teachings. You do my teachings. You will have inward stability. But if you do anything else, you put experience before me or your heart before me, anything else before me, there will not be inward stability, but rather inward recklessness. This is the claim, and this is the message of Jesus as he wraps up his Sermon on the Mount with some very simple application, which is do the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard the Sermon on the Mount, now do the Sermon on the Mount. Live like you're breaking in the kingdom of God, bringing light into darkness, bringing the kingdom with you. So we need to think through our life because we're building one. Our relationship with God and the world and the friends and the family and the time and all these, we need to look at that list and we need to say, do I know what Jesus teaches about these things? Am I doing what Jesus says to do with these things? Because if we do, until we meet Jesus, the house will stand. 
I'll pray and we'll sing one more song, then we'll be dismissed. Jesus, I pray that we would build this church on the rock. I pray that we'd build our individual lives on the rock. I pray that I would build my life on the rock. Lord, I, I pray for those who in uh, arrogance or ignorance or disbelief do not follow your teaching, that you'd have mercy on them and bring them to you as they search for teaching, that you'd illuminate the path to you t- for them. I pray for those of us who have heard that we would decide to do, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, that our identity and belief system will stay intact even when the rains come. In Jesus' name, amen.